the America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean has partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your happy place. And with more than 400 national parks, there's a good chance you'll find one close to home. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. During the Cold War, a vast arsenal of nuclear missiles was placed across the Great Plains. Hidden in plain sight for 30 years, 1,000 missiles were kept on constant alert. Hundreds remain today. The Minuteman missile remains an iconic weapon in the American nuclear arsenal. It holds the power to destroy civilization, but is meant as a nuclear deterrent to maintain peace and prevent war. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site near Wall, South Dakota. There were 15 launch control facilities that commanded and controlled 150 silos housing Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles. The park protects two such facilities that were once part of a missile fleet that covered the far western portion of South Dakota from 1963 through the early 90s. Launch Control Facility Delta-1 with its corresponding underground silo, Delta-9. During the Cold War, thousands of Air Force personnel in Minuteman missile fields throughout the Great Plains worked and lived around nuclear weapons that held unprecedented destructive power. It was these weapons that constantly threatened the devastation of any aggressor nation that might consider launching a nuclear attack against the United States or its allies. This threat of mutually assured destruction acted as a deterrent to enemies while paradoxically preserving an uneasy peace. One of the most serious responsibilities during the Cold War was to be a part of a missile crew with the ability to initiate the use of nuclear weapons from a launch control center. These crews were ready to respond at a moment's notice. At the same time, maintenance and security police ensured that the sites were totally secure and always functioning. The missile field was operational 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 365 days a year, for 30 years. Despite the searing summer heat and brutal winter cold in South Dakota, operational status of the missiles was maintained at all times. What follows are the words from the people that operated these sites. Alan Martins, Linda Aldrich, Stephen Willis, Tucker Fagan, James Bench, Alonzo Hall, Steve Gifford, and Brett Whitmore. Being a missile error was pretty interesting back then. We were brand new. We were the first crews that did this. The silo was 80 feet deep. The missile was about 60 feet. And there was a 1.2 megaton hydrogen bomb on top of that. Our job was to monitor the 10 missiles. 
once they put the missile in and put a nuclear warhead on top, we had to be there 24 hours a day. And like we were on alert. Weather permitting, you were able to come home when the next crew relieved you. Of course, considering where missile sites are, sometimes you didn't get to come home. You might be there for 48 hours or occasionally even longer. We had a schedule. The deputy and I would drive out and take over the alert. We'd go downstairs, and uh, these guys had been there for 24 hours, and they're ready to go home. And we would go through the crew change. They would take their padlocks off the red box. That's where the launch keys were, and that's where the code packs were. We had these locks. I mean to tell you, I practiced, 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 so that the first time that I had opened that lock to get the uh, red documents out, I did not mess it up. As soon as the padlocks were clicked, we were in control of the capsule. Out on alert, there's only two of us. You had to have at least two persons qualified in the task to be performed and present and capable of telling if the other person was doing something uh, out of sorts or illegal or dangerous. Everything was handled through the two officers in the capsule for security, for maintenance. The maintenance teams have to go out to the launch facilities and the capsule because something is not working right and it's up to me and my team to get it back up so they can actually do what they have to do when the time comes. When maintenance teams were sent out to the missile field, they always had to have a security team with them. We were responsible for escorting maintenance crews uh, that had to do anything to do with the missile field. During the time frame that I was on crew, I was particularly cognizant of the importance of the job. It was still during the Cold War. We were standing on ground zero of World War III. We were target number one for any Soviet first strike. That's part of understanding the consequences of using nuclear weapons. This is still the only job in the Air Force, to my recollection, that you take a person that's average age, about 21, 22 years old, and you send them in the field to work unsupervised on nuclear weapons. When you're 20 years old, 21 years old, you don't think about the ramifications that you have a thermonuclear device in the ground. Some of that was stressful on your mind, and you didn't really like to think about it or talk about that aspect of it. So that's where you'd cut up and make jokes. Anytime you do work like that, eating takes on a... a so you, had, you ate three meals down there, so you would consider what you were gonna eat and when you were gonna eat. November 1 had probably the best cook in the whole place. He baked homemade bread and buns and things like that. So everybody likes to go to November if they could. I wanted to be a part of something that was really special and something I could get my hands on and do well at and uh, take care of my family and serve the country. We had people die during the Cold War. We had people that were casualties of the Cold War. They were my friends, you know. 
serious business. But uh, people don't need to remember it just because of me. Remember it because of what it meant to America. You know, we still have an America because of what we did. I don't want America to remember the missiles. I want America to remember the people. There was a lot of men and women that, uh, through their efforts, kept the potential enemy uh, thinking. If we did our job, deterrence was real, and Russians would say, not today, comrade. They're on alert. That's what the nuclear forces have done, has created that environment where there's generally has been peace at the highest levels. And that's what we continue to do today. Local landowners and members of small towns in the central and northern Great Plains lived literally side by side with nuclear weapons. In the background to all this were the American people who enjoyed American freedoms and prosperity, yet also knew that their way of life could be destroyed in a matter of hours by nuclear war. Here's more from local residents Rick Husted, Bill Bilemeyer, Gene Williams, Brett Whitmore, Chuck Turbeville, Gary Pearson, Lindy Kirkbride, and Tim Pavick. When the ICBM force was being built, beginning in the 1950s, ICBM fields, you needed a lot of, of land in order to distribute these missiles. The heartland of America was obvious place we were going to do this. We weren't going to do them in heavily populated areas. We were standing on ground zero of World War III. We were target number one for any Soviet first strike. They knew where we were. We had geographic coordinates. They knew exactly where we were. Their satellites circled the Earth, just like ours did theirs, you know, their area. The people around Wall, uh, the farmers and ranchers, we had seen the missiles being put in and the launch controls and everything. So we were aware from the get-go that we had nuclear missiles around Wall. And we also talked about the fact that just because we were here in the middle of a lot of those missile sites, we probably were also a number one target for the enemy side, if there was one, of the risk of a missile coming in doing a lot of destruction. People drove through the area unaware that in the fields and in the pastures adjacent to Interstate 90 on their way to the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore lay a nuclear arsenal of 150 intercontinental ballistic missiles. They started to uh, improve the roads that they would require heavy weight on. So in some cases you'd be in the middle of nowhere and there'd be a beautiful paved road. The missile program during the construction, it definitely brought business and, and revenue into the wall area just by the magnitude of the construction. And, and I'm sure it helped our economy. It, it was a real boom for those of us in that area because these are extra jobs, they're higher, high paying jobs. We had a, a lot of people that would farm and ranch and work on the construction. Because of the missile sites and the electrical system that was put in place to service them, our area has been very blessed with uh, having uh, the capacity to expand and grow. 
The boom, boom town, if we're going to call it that, it happened in Rapid City. People that worked on those silos were mostly contractors and subcontractors. Nobody questioned what was going on. I mean, it was, it was America. It's what you did as Americans, is what you did as rural people who loved your country. And whatever president felt was the right thing to do for America, you supported that 100%. Nobody wants to distrust our government. We just want to believe that they have our best in mind. One time I took a jar of soil from the missile site and I gave it to Congressman Cheney in Washington in his office and said, this is the land, this is the soil that could be, should be growing things. But around the perimeter of the missile silo, they put herbicides on so that nothing grows. This isn't what we want. We want to be able to continue. I want to be able to pass on the ranch to my children and children's children. I ran into a rancher up by faith, and he said, the presence of the missile sites nearby always gave me a level of comfort in that we were playing our part in protecting the United States. Not many people know the power of these weapon systems, and it's not well known, and we live around them. You know, we just drive by them and don't even think about them because that's what we do we, every day. The destructive power of the nuclear weapons, how could I not speak out when I, once I learned that? Because I have children. And how could I not tell them that why are we spending your future money that could go for roads and schools and so many positive things that our country needs, and instead we're spending on these weapons that we hope to never use. Though the Minuteman 1 and the Minuteman 2 missiles are long gone from the prairie, hundreds of Minuteman 3 missiles lie underneath the earth of Montana, North Dakota, Nebraska, Colorado, and Wyoming, ready to launch. Each launch control center still has two officers on duty, while maintenance crews and security remain at their posts round the clock every day of the year. Minuteman Missile National Historic Site's purpose is to tell the story of Minuteman missiles nuclear deterrence, and the Cold War. Delta-1 and Delta-9 are striking examples of the alert status of United States nuclear forces during this time period. These sites, along with the exhibits in the Visitor Center, help people understand the story of one of the most important eras in both American and world history. The park presents an opportunity to reflect on a peaceful prairie that once held the power to destroy the world serving as a public venue for examining the challenges and paradoxes of Cold War. Exhibits share stories of the technology that made it possible, servicemen and women, citizens near and far who feared the worst, the call for civil defense, and leaders at home and abroad who led the world to the brink and back. Minuteman Missile National Historic Site is located along a 15-mile stretch of Interstate 90 in western South Dakota. The Visitor Center shares a highway exit with Badlands National Park. 
All visitors to Delta One can walk up to the large entrance gate and look through the fence into the compound. A self-guided cell phone tour to the outside of the fence will be made available in the summer of 2019. But entry into the facility requires a reserved ranger guided tour, where you'll see the control center's small elevator and tight underground space. Each tour is limited to six participants and a park ranger. Reservations can be made online up to 90 days prior to tour date. Same day tour reservations are not available in the summer season. The tour is $12 per adult and $8 for youth. Children must be 40 inches tall and six years of age. You have to certify that you're able to climb two 15-foot ladders unassisted in the event the elevator malfunctions. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. The text and audio are courtesy of the National Park Service. We'll embed the video that the interviews are taken from in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>